You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Hey everybody, as always before I begin, here is a promo for a really well-known podcast, but I just wanted to share it because it's one of my favorites. Here goes. Hey there, this is Erica Kelly, host of the podcast Southern Fraud True Crime. Each week, I take a look at a different Southern crime. And like any good gossip, I'm interested in anyone or anything. I cover contemporary and historical cases, and I love listener suggestions. Come join me as I explore the dark underbelly of the Deep South. I'm a one-woman show in a narrative format. Kind of like sitting by the fire and listening to a story. So pull up a chair and subscribe if you're interested. I'd love to have you. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and just about any podcast platform. Just search for Southern Fried True Crime. Until then, y'all take care. Okay, first of all, Erica is an amazing person in real life as well. And her storytelling and the cases, they're just so well done. If you're not listening to her podcast, you're definitely missing out. Go subscribe and check it out. Now, let's begin today's episode. Welcome back to the Asian Madness podcast. This week's case, we will not be exploring a new country. But if that's your thing, don't worry, I will get back to that soon enough since I still have a list to get through. The thing is, I wanted to do a bonus episode on this case, but after really looking into it, it had way more information than I imagined, so it makes more sense to make it a full episode. I would like to thank one of my best friends, Angelina, for suggesting this case. She's not a big fan of crime or murder, but she's pretty supportive, and I appreciate that a lot. This case happened in May of 2014 in Taipei, Taiwan. It would be an understatement to say that this case was chaotic and brought on waves of panic throughout the country. In a sense, this is one of those things that you hear about and you think, oh, it doesn't really happen here. Think of mass shootings, school shootings, mass attacks, that sort of thing. Now, take out the guns and replace them with accessible kitchenware like knives. Now, instead of a school or a mall, let's find an enclosed space. Maybe like a moving train? But not really a train, more like the underground metro. In Taiwan, the metro system is called the MRT, short for Mass Rapid Transit. The first MRT line began running in Taipei in the year 1996, and since then, more and more lines and stops have been added. It's super convenient for a tiny place like Taipei because driving is a freaking hassle and motorbikes are pretty dangerous. 
Okay, I think that's enough side info for the moment. So let's get into the actual case. The following events occurred on May 21st, 2014. A man was showing some strange behavior while riding on the MRT in Taipei. Not like anyone really noticed, because everyone was busy with their own thing, and they all had their own destinations to get to. But how was he being erratic? At 3.34 in the afternoon, he got on the MRT at a station near his family home called Jiangzi which was on the blue line. The station was located more around the south of Taipei. He took the MRT and traveled seven stops total northeast to the heart of Taipei City and got off at the station called Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall Station. He did not leave the station, though. All he did was cross to the other side of the platform just to get back on the train heading back to where he initially came from, as in heading back down south. At 4.22, the train was departing Longshan Temple Station, and the next stop would be Jiangzi the station that this weird man initially got on from. One thing to note, the travel time and distance between these two stops would be exceptionally long because there is a river in between the two stations. The total travel time between the two stations is approximately 3 minutes and 46 seconds. That's probably too long for travelers in a hurry, but just long enough for someone to cause chaos and irreparable harm. As soon as the train departed Longshan Temple Station, this man took out two knives he had hidden on him. One was a Swiss Army knife, the other one was a kitchen knife. No one noticed anything strange, mostly because no one was expecting anything like this to happen. No one was even looking at him. It was an ordinary afternoon. There were students, travelers, mothers with kids, all that. Most people were either dozing off or looking at their smartphones. And this man decided to take advantage of the situation. He began stabbing at random people, starting with three passengers who were taking a nap on the train. He aimed for their chest and stomach areas, intending to cause harm and death. He began to stab and slash at any passenger he came across. And since the trains were all connected on the inside, he had no problem going from one end to the other. He stabbed a woman four times, and he only stopped when the woman pleaded with him. You've stabbed me four times already. Please, don't kill me. It was probably the longest three minutes and 46 seconds for those trapped in the MRT with this lunatic. As soon as the train arrived at the next stop, people ran out of the train and the man walked out and tried to attack other passengers waiting on the platform. Certain passengers began to recover from the shock and tried fighting back, using whatever they could use as armor or weapons. A 62-year-old man eventually managed to tackle him down, and the police arrived shortly after. He was arrested at 4.30 in the afternoon. The best place to start would be the very beginning, as in, who is this guy? What was his problem? Surely this person had a terrible childhood and did not have friends. Well, it's not always as it seems, and although this case has a terrible ending, it doesn't mean it wasn't once a normal story. This man's name is Zhen Jie, 
but to make this episode easier, I will just refer to his last name, which is spelled C-H-E-N-G, as in Cheng. He was born on April 3rd, 1993, in Taipei. According to sources and various reports, his parents were there for him. He had a younger brother he got along with, and they were well-off, had expensive cars. Well, he had pretty much anything he needed. He took taekwondo classes for four years when he was young, and even received a black belt. He was said to be as ordinary as a kid could be. He was happy, he smiled, he liked to play with other kids, worked hard at school, etc. He did well enough in middle school, maybe not top-notch, but good enough to get him into a good high school in his local area. He was always outgoing and had lots of friends, but his classmates had began to notice a shift in his personality. Every time he hung out with his friends, he would talk about his plans to commit murder. He talked about this to his online gaming buddies as well. Yeah, of course they thought this guy was a bit strange, but not weird enough to do anything about it. Not surprisingly, no one took him seriously. After graduating from high school in 2011, he was admitted into the National Defense University's Department of Power and Systems Engineering. I don't actually know what the department is called for real, but it has to do with mechanical things and engineering things. Yeah. University-wise, it's a pretty good school with military affiliations. All his hard work and ambitions kind of hit a wall after he began his university life, though. He was expelled in June of 2013 for failing more than half of his courses. This expulsion seemed to have hit him pretty hard as his personality took an even bigger turn, mostly for the worst. He maybe decided to get his shit together at some point after he got kicked out, so he applied for a university transfer to a school called Zhonghai University located in Taichung City. He would be admitted in September of the same year to study environmental engineering. Okay, you're probably thinking, wow, this guy really likes to get into the mechanical and engineering bits, huh? Well, no. He was actually way more of a liberal arts and language kind of guy. You see, his family business was more on the engineering end so his father expected and wanted his son to take over the family business eventually. After all, it made them really good money, and who doesn't want good money, right? Dreams, hopes, eh, money? That's what counts. I'm kidding, in case you couldn't tell. But no, money is important. Okay, that's not the point. I don't know if Cheng's father 100% objected to his son going into language and liberal arts, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did. And Cheng, being the obedient child, did as he was told, but I suppose it really wasn't what he was into. Cheng even tried to transfer into a Chinese language major, but his grades weren't good enough and was rejected by the department. So he was stuck with environmental engineering. This whole ordeal sent him into some sort of depression, I assume, because he became withdrawn and became addicted to the internet and writing fantasy novels. After starting school again at Donghai University, he spent most of his time at home or in his dorm room playing online games such as League of Legends and avoiding people. 
I think many of us can actually relate to the avoiding people part, since that's exactly what I've been doing these past years. His withdrawal and depression went deeper and deeper. He was starting to actually concern those around him. The thing is, Donghai University wasn't located in Taipei, so he was never really around his family. Even if there was something really wrong with him, I don't think his parents really knew about it. Or they knew, but they thought it was just, you know, teenage angst or a bad mood. Remember, Asians don't really recognize mental health. Like, really don't. Doesn't mean that they think it doesn't exist. They just don't realize that this is a real thing and no one thinks it's a big deal. Or sometimes they think it's such a big deal, it's so shameful, so no one really talks about it. In April of 2014, about a month before shit went down, an ex-high school classmate reported Chang to the university authorities, stating that he was acting weird. Apparently, Chang had posted on Facebook random posts about doing something major and other similar things along that line. Cheng was brought to the school psychiatrist for a session two weeks later in early May, but he just explained that he was in a bad mood at the time and needed to vent. Plus, he wrote a lot of horror fantasy novels, so it was just how he wrote. Basically, he convinced everyone that he was just being dramatic. And of course, everybody believed him. They probably thought the situation was contained for now, but oh boy, were they absolutely wrong. Cheng probably spent weeks planning out his ultimate attack. We've seen plenty of similar incidents where mass murderers or school shooters post about their anger online and reveal bits and pieces to their friends. This was no different, except mass attacks don't happen much, so no one is hypersensitive or especially vigilant. Can't blame them. You can't be prepared for a battle you never knew existed. So now it is the day of the attack. Here is what happened that day. On May 21st, the day of the attack, Chang was actually at his university dorm in Taichung City, about 158 kilometers or 100 miles south of Taipei City. He first went to a large grocery store near his school and purchased a large Swiss Army folding knife. He then went to a main bus station and took a bus heading up to Taipei, getting off at the station nearest to his house. When he arrived, he met up with an old friend of his and the two went to a nearby McDonald's to grab some lunch. They discussed a popular mobile game that was really popular at the time, and a while later, Chen got up and told his friend that he was off to, quote-unquote, get into the mood because I'm going to strike later. His friend thought Cheng was referring to the game, so he didn't think much of it. Cheng then went to a supermarket near the MRT station and purchased a 30-centimeter titanium kitchen knife. He was now ready to strike. You already know what happened after he entered the MRT station. But quick recap. He took the MRT going seven stops one way, got off, got back on the MRT going back, and between the 6th and 7th station, which happened to be a longer ride, he took out both knives and began attacking innocent people on the MRT. Most times people think you would have to put yourself in a compromising situation to get attacked like this. The odds of getting attacked in a dark alley in the middle of the night 
greatly surpasses the odds of getting attacked on a train in the middle of the afternoon. Cheng managed to stab a couple dozen people and aimed for their chest and their stomach. He was determined and was here to kill, not to just cause panic. He was arrested at the next station, where the police were notified and arrived in just a few minutes. There was blood everywhere. EMTs also arrived on the scene and a total of 28 people were sent to three different hospitals. 16 people suffered minor to moderate injuries, 8 people suffered major injuries, and 4 were pronounced dead shortly after. Catastrophic? Yeah, I would say that. Taiwan's pretty innocent when it comes to the world of crime. And honestly, I hope it stays that way. After Cheng's arrest, stuff about his past began to surface, including his blog posts, which were kind of his dark little secrets. Slightly similar to the douche known as Elliot Roger, and plenty other creeps, this guy also wrote something similar to a manifesto, or rather a bunch of blog posts detailing his life, his promise to kill, explaining why he wanted to kill, and a bunch of fantasy scenarios as to how it would all go down. In one of his posts, he called himself the leader of his pack when he was in elementary school, and they would pick on girls for fun. First of all, being a pack leader in elementary school sounds so lame and so not badass. You're like 10. Grab an ice cream and go watch anime. Second of all, leading your pack of boys to pick on girls? Double lame. According to his blog, he was able to pick on all the girls except for two who were fierce as fuck and refused to stand down to him. So how did this make him feel? He swore revenge on these two girls, stating that when he grew up, he would hunt them down and kill them. Okay, imagine a 10-year-old swearing revenge on two girls because he couldn't make them cry. This is so dumb. He continued, saying that if he did not manage to kill them, he would either make himself disappear at the age of 43 or go on a killing spree. Okay, no, I do not know why age 43 specifically, and I also wish he could have waited another decade, wait, two decades, and just vanish. At least people wouldn't end up hurt or dead. In another post, he detailed how he would kill in the MRT and even tried to write a poem about people dying on the train tracks. Weirdo. Apparently, all of this was public, and when that friend of his read it, he had called the university authorities to check on him. Chang had been going through a rough time, first getting expelled, then not being able to study his real passion, and then getting called in for a psychological evaluation. Life was not what he imagined it to be, so he decided that now was the perfect time to carry out his ultimate life plan. The police noted that Chang appeared calm and passive, somewhat detached when he was arrested. He was not high on drugs, and although he had alcohol in his system, it was only at 0.04. Chang was fully aware of what he had done, and even asked a police officer if he would get the death penalty. Chang later stated that he had always wanted to commit suicide, but lacked courage to do so, so he decided to try to get the death sentence so he could finish off his life 
of pain and suffering. Sounds like he's trying to commit suicide via the legal system. But seriously, at what cost? Why take so many other people with you? Chen gave an account of his motive and his thoughts on his actions. I roughly translated what he said to English. Quote, My parents had high hopes for me, but going to school was too stressful. Being alive was too much. I started my murder plan since the fifth grade, and I feel no remorse or regret for what I have done. I feel relieved because I've achieved my dreams. And if I get another chance, I will kill many more. Ever since I was young, I made a pact with myself to murder a bunch of people, even if it means I get sentenced to death. I told my friends about my plans, and one of them tried to talk me out of it. To achieve my dream, I applied to a military university so I could train hard and get my body ready. Going to a military-affiliated university also meant that we would not have to pay for it, and I don't want to use my parents' money. I could instead give them money and I could make them happy and not have them worry about me. Because of my sole purpose, I refrained from ever having a girlfriend because I know I don't have a future. End quote. Clearly, this guy had his short life planned out. But again, at what cost? He admitted that he felt lonely all his life, and because of his lack of emotions, he had trouble understanding compassion or even having compassion for others. He believes he's alone and that no one else matters to him, and in the same way, he doesn't matter to anybody else. As for those that he killed, he has no emotions towards them because, quote, I would never have any interest towards anything or anyone that has no ties to me. Those that died were not my friends or family members, end quote. While he was waiting for his trial, he only allowed his family members, as in his parents and his brother, to visit him. It took them at least a week to finally go visit him. I would assume it was extremely difficult for his family to accept what their own family member had done. Can you imagine the guilt? On May 27th, about a week after the mass attack, Chang's parents made a visit to the MRT station where the incident had occurred. They brought flowers. They read an apology letter, got down on their knees, and continued to apologize. His parents are crying as they read the apology letter, and they also expressed their thoughts on their son. Quote, Although he is our son, his crimes have caused so much irreparable damage, and we also understand how it feels to lose a loved one. The judges will probably give him the death sentence, and we hope it can be done as quickly as possible. We know we have made mistakes raising him all these years, and we are to blame. We just hope our son can be a better human being in his next life. End quote. Although they are his parents, I cannot help but feel kind of bad for them. In a sense, they are also the victims. Having your family murdered is terrible, yes, but I also can't imagine what it's like having to agree with the system to have your son executed. Clearly, they thought this was suitable. Some say an eye for an eye, a life for a life. But one life for four? I guess it's the best they could do. In July, Chang was indicted on four counts of murder and 22 counts of attempted murder. The initial trial began later in August. 
At the end of the trial, which would be in March of 2015, Cheng was convicted to four counts of murder, and for the injuries that he caused, he would have an additional sentence of five to eight years for each person he injured. In April 2016, at the Supreme Court hearing, Cheng apologized to the families of the victims. He also took this time to criticize the Agency of Corrections, saying that all the work they offered in prison was meaningless. Cheng stated that the Agency of Corrections enjoyed creating hate in prison, then allowing an inmate to leave without getting any rehabilitation. And because they have not changed, they would get discriminated in the real world, and they would then return to their old ways and commit more crimes. Basically, a vicious cycle. But this is old news. Tons of correctional facilities and related agencies have been accused of not doing much correcting. I really don't know how it is behind the prison doors, and I wouldn't want to blame any of the workers there. I'm sure it's not easy doing what they do, keeping criminals in check. But then again, how many of them are actually interested in making the inmates better people? After two years in prison, Chang seemed to have changed his way of thinking somewhat. I won't say he's remorseful, but he did say, quote, "If I could restart my life, I probably wouldn't kill people." Is this some kind of remorse? Maybe. The Supreme Court gave the following reasons for sentencing Chang to death. Number one, Chang was apprehended on sight. All evidence points to him. Number two, during the crime. Chang did not exhibit any kind of mental disorder, as stated in Criminal Law Article 19. Number three, Chang's crimes were heinous, and only the death penalty could showcase the severity of his crimes. Number four, Taiwan is a country with the death penalty, and his crimes are of utmost severity, as listed in both the ICCPR and ICESCR treaties. Number five. Although both treaties lean towards abolishing the death penalty, the sentencing in this court still stands. So he was sentenced to death on April twenty second, two thousand sixteen. He was executed only eighteen days later. He left a short letter to his parents, mostly just apologizing for what he had done. On May tenth. He was executed between 8:47 and 8:51 p.m. Three gunshots in total. He was pronounced dead at 8:58 p.m. He was 23 years old. In Taiwan, a group of inmates usually get executed together. Taiwan does group executions, and always with guns. There is no lethal injection or the electric chair. I don't think. I've never heard of it, at least. He was cremated three days later. So, like I said, this was a major event in recent years. This incident forced everyone to take a harder look at our legal system, our mental health, and family dynamics. The mayor of New Taipei City made the following statement to the country: "Tell your children that you will hold their hand, but they have to walk the road themselves. Once your children are grown." You will need to learn to let go, because there is no other choice. He lamented over the death of the four victims, but at the same time, he asked the public not to turn their hate towards Cheng's family. Although they are the parents, 
they had to let go of their son. Or maybe, just maybe, the son let go of his parents. Either way, he chose his own path, knowing right from wrong. The mayor of Taipei City also told the public that the MRT was still safe, and what happened was a one-time incident. Despite his reassurance, passengers on the MRT decreased significantly in the following months, while taxi rides increased significantly. Honestly, if a taxi driver killed a passenger today, the exact opposite would probably happen. The government tried to take control of the situation by assigning police officers and security guards to ride on the MRT as well, mostly to make passengers feel safe. There are some more legal and policy-related things that resulted from this case, and a bunch of political crap. But I have a few other areas that I would rather focus on. First of all, I want to discuss the disdain and anger and evaluation people have on Cheng's parents. What people want to know is what kind of family is capable of raising a child that ends up killing at age twenty. This is a complicated question, and also nobody raises their kid to become a killer. I think people like to act like they know everything and say, "Oh, the parents didn't do a good job," or "The education system failed him," or "Oh, he was denied of love and acceptance at home." What a terrible family! Or, well, he was crazy. Nothing is really black and white, according to a psychologist. He analyzed the letter Cheng's parents had read out loud and their apology and thoughts on their son. The fact that his parents seemed to be in a hurry to cut ties with their son and even promoted the idea of the death penalty on their own son seems a bit cold-hearted. It's one thing for society to urge for the death penalty. But it's another thing for his parents to do so. Also, Chang's father was overheard commenting on how much debt they will be in because they will face all the lawsuits and payments to the families of the injured and the deceased. This came off rather selfish, and in the opinion of the psychologist, Chang's parents loved themselves way more than they loved their own son. I'm not a psychologist, and I don't even know if what they said was true. All I know is nothing is black and white, and you can't specifically blame one group for everything. For all I know, it's a combination of different factors that caused an unfortunate incident to occur. If everyone from a crappy family ended up a murderer, well, that would be insane. Cheng was an adult, and he knew what he was doing. What do you guys think? I think I'm not that surprised that the parents tried to side with society by condemning their own son, even if it meant agreeing to the death sentence. Four lives gone, so many more changed forever. Them pleading for their son's life and innocence probably won't make people feel better. Also, they had another son to worry about. The last thing they would want is for him to face discrimination and backlash for his brother's actions. Of course, the internet is very conflicted over this case. Some accuse the parents for being the worst parents ever. Some say it's not fair to blame the parents. Some say their apology was only done for the cameras, and that it meant nothing. And then we have those creeps who worship what Cheng did. Like, are we even surprised anymore? 
Elliot Roger had his own group of weird and cell fanboys. School shooters had other kids look up to them and copy them. So shortly after the attack on the MRT, a stupid fan page was created on Facebook, and the description on the page was basically loads of kiss-ass remarks about Chang and how he's an angel to the world. Okay, bro. In just a few hours, the page had over 2,000 likes, but tons more people tried reporting this page because it's so gross. It got shut down, but a few hours later, it popped back up, and another description was added to the page, saying, If you don't agree with our values, please leave. If you're not a virgin, please leave. What? A virgin? What an incel comment. Hmm. So you see, gross people and murderers come in all colors and nationalities. The police looked into the IAP and such for the group and found a guy, but the guy insisted he was only reposting the fan page. He apologized for his actions. He's fake and he's a coward. So if he was just a decoy, who was the big guy behind the group? They eventually traced it back to a university student in Taipei, and he admitted that he was only doing this to get his parents' attention. Seriously, people think they're so smart and so badass, but once they get caught, they're like little bitches who apologize, cry, and come up with lame-ass excuses. These people need to never have access to the internet ever again. So here's one question for you listeners. Do you think Chang deserved the death penalty? What he did was awful and it ruined so many people's lives, yes. But was it necessary to execute him? And that quickly? I personally see this also as a political move, because by getting rid of someone like him, people feel safer and they would rather not use their tax money to keep somebody like him alive. I get the sentiment, but was that the right move? For someone to do something like that means they've probably thought it all through, gone through all the scenarios, and still somehow felt the need to do so. I don't see how this person is wired like, say, you or me. Normal kids and teens don't dream about killing groups of people. So what was it about him? In an article discussing Chang's psychology, it feels as if Chang does have the ability to feel remorse and make changes. But it just so happens society never thought of this as a way to go about it. Is there no way that he could have benefited from rehabilitation? And at the same time, Taiwan's knowledge on mental health could have also made progress by studying him. The article ends by stating, Unfortunately, our society does not allow Chang to live any longer, nor are we allowed to understand his motives, his upbringing, and his family. The article mentioned Sue Klebold, one of the Columbine shooter's mother, and her quest to understand what went wrong and how she shared her discoveries in her TED Talk. It takes a lot of courage for a parent to do so. I honestly hope that Chang's family and his parents don't try to just pretend nothing ever happened. There's one thing that is kind of different culture-wise, not sure if you've noticed. But in Taiwan, when murder happens, we usually don't have information on the deceased. When something tragic happens, the victims tend to be left out of the spotlight. 
Maybe because it's more interesting to focus on the perpetrator, but also I think it has to do with giving the dead and the victims and their families respect and space. In news reports, you rarely even get the full name of the victims, just their last names. It's interesting because in most true crime podcasts I listen to, people like to stress the importance of the victim, which of course, I agree, they're very important. Never forget. But I guess there's a different take on it in other cultures. Just my thoughts though, don't quote me on that. The train has been completely cleaned and disinfected. They performed Buddhist, Taoist, and Christian rituals on the train for those that died. The train section number has also since been renamed. So, there you have it. One of the most recent mass attacks in Taiwan's history. I think this was the fifth mass attack in Taiwan since the year 2000. So, honestly, not that many. I still haven't really decided on how I feel about the death penalty. But I kind of don't think Cheng had to be executed. He was a disturbed individual, not a kid, but a young man. Maybe he could have used some treatment. But I know that getting rid of him once and for all was the easy way out for everybody, including himself probably. So remember, we are probably never completely safe. Please be aware of your surroundings. Murderers and creeps don't have a signature look, so always be vigilant. Thank you for tuning in again. Till next time. And of course, before I go, I have a shout out. Thank you to Franny Boo 123 from the US for your amazing review. Thank you for calling me the cool chick, because sometimes I need to have my ego boost. And you've done it. Yay, thank you. Okay. Well, thanks again, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time. <laughs>